Popper to the People is brought to you by MTG Madness. You can visit them online at mtgmadness.com. I'm one of your people, my name is Maddie, and with me I have some other people here. Uh, let's introduce the former main host of Popular People Podcast, what? it's Nate. Hey, what's up, former? <laughs> oh. well, we also got Peter here, the one with the punchlines. Hey. And then we don't have Chris tonight, Chris is feeling sick and, and is staying in bed but we have the viking from sweden it's dan hey Matti. <laughs> <laughs> and we have a special guest tonight from so many insane place podcast it's kevin crow hi thanks for having me uh, thank you for coming do you want to give a short introduction to our listeners about who you are well, I suppose you would say, as you said, I am one of the two hosts of the So Many Insane Plays podcast, along with Stephen Menendian, and we focus almost exclusively on vintage. But I am primarily a vintage player. I play, my only competitive magic is vintage. I do play some casual formats. And I've been podcasting for a couple of years now, and I'm generally glad to be here and discuss some, some theory with you guys. Uh, sounds amazing. And I think we're ready to go with the news, unless someone wants to introduce themselves again. I'm, I, I could say I, I haven't been on the podcast for since, I think, Return to Ravnica set review, so some of the new listeners won't remember me, but, but you can find me on the forums. I run the forums and do some backroom stuff for the People, people podcast. And the first news item we have today, we're going to just go through a few news because we want to get to the topic. Uh, but Wizards just announced a new From the Vault product, and it's called From the Vault Annihilation. Anyone get a look of this already? What do you think it will be? Um, it's going to be board wipes. I think we're <laughs> going to see Damnation. I think we're going to see some alt art of damnation and some wrath of god and some basically all the fun little board wipe cards that most edh players love because edh is the thing and that's part of the reason why from the vault is such a a good why they why they produce them pretty much yeah. i think we it's pretty likely we won't see any commons in this product no <laughs> oh no I do hope that we see Peter's favorite card, though, Jockle Hops, because he likes that card. Eat a bullet, Nate. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, is there a card that you would like to see in the product? Well, when I first read this title, I thought it sounded awfully spiky, this product, because for a collectible product, most, most of the time it is, in the past, focused on... <clears throat> big creatures or legends or high profile spells and to think of a whole set based on removal sounds kind of odd given this product line yeah uh, but as we'll talk about later with regard to vintage there are plenty of removal spells that get used in vintage which would be fine candidates for this set 
like swords to plowshares, yeah, for example. Seems I like it would fit the theme in a, in a way. Yeah, the big expensive just... spells, the jockle hops, the damnation, the I don't know, world fire, that kind of stuff that sees play in EDH doesn't see play in vintage. So yeah. uh, it's only a cheap, efficient, possibly famous removal spell like swords, I think, that would fit the bill. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was already printed in from the Vault 20. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I know it's been printed a few times, especially in these kind of extra sets. So. The odds low on that example, but that's about the only thing that comes to mind is some kind of disenchant variant that has seen play in vintage, perhaps. Yeah. Hey. I don't know what their broad definition of annihilation happens to be. Yeah, they have a picture already here on one of the cards, I'm guessing. So I'm expecting there will be some creatures in here that destroy things, though. Yeah. I mean, there's I no mean, way they'll print a set like this with no creatures in it, right? Yeah. Or no yeah, desolation these. giant. Yeah, Desolation Giant. Well, the thing is, it's always been with uh, with the From the Vault. Like, you notice these From the Vault starting to come out more frequently as EDH became a thing. Just because you can get those old cards easier. And they can they can pimp out and, like, make more money off of Commander. Because they haven't made enough money yet. <laughs> so... <laughs> I mean, seriously, Commander has really hit the market as a big thing for a lot of Magic players. It's almost their go-to casual uh, event that they like to that a lot of a lot of people like to play. So, I would definitely agree that the majority of this product is going to be geared toward Commander. Yeah. So I mean, I think that's what we're going to see. We're just going to see a lot of really good playable Commander cards. I mean, especially I like. I, said, I would. I would. I would like to see a damn. I personally would like to see damnation in there, just because I need one. <laughs> and uh, I think I think they could do some damnation, some justice by giving it some new artwork. Yeah, Agreed. if they're doing just based it off like wrath and stuff spells, like the big ones that I think people would want to see would be like damnation and like final judgment, just because those ones are a pain in the butt to track down. Yeah. Otherwise, if they're just going to do like different kinds of removal too. You could see some pretty interesting ones. And like well, I said, if we wanted to see a couple of creatures, Desolation and Giant and Get of the Line, I think are like the biggest yeah. candidates for it. I, I, I like swords, though. I'd love to see a swords of Pushers. Card's just too awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. We, we shall see. We haven't, they haven't spoiled any cards yet, but yeah. we will see before the product comes out. Doesn't it make sense but that I've... there would be a creature with Annihilator in here, too? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Just, what is it? It's just all Eldrazi. Enjoy. Yeah, it's just all Eldrazi. <laughs> <laughs> is there any Eldrazi that hasn't been uh, reprinted yet? None of them have. None of the legendary ones. Ulamog was in uh, From the World Legends. Mm -hmm. My bad, yeah, he wasn't there, but I think he's the only one. Online, Emrakul has been a promo. Yeah, well, it's promo on paper, too. Okay. I think Kozlik is the only one who didn't Kozlik's the only one see a replay. So that seems the most likely then, if there is one. Yeah. Yeah. But then again, you have the Eldrazi one. All is dust. That's never been reprinted. Yeah, it's because he's never that big of a thing, mainly because you play Ulamog because it comes into play, blows stuff up, and then he annihilators. Yeah. Kozlik is huge, and then makes you draw a card or whatever, and then Emrakul just makes you win the game. So yeah. There really hasn't been a reason for a the other one or whatever yeah, yeah. but all is dust that's oh yeah the wrath spell my bad i was thinking if that betrays for some reason 
Emrakul makes a bunch of sense, except it's banned in Commander. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think all's dust would be seen. I think it, also seem, it also seems uh, likely, or at least a rumor, that they will be returning to Sendikar mm. and uh, maybe involving the Theros storyline somewhere in the three Eldrazi will probably wait to be reprinted until Oh that man, Eldrazi planeswalkers. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're basically played up to be gods, more or less, so. Because the creatures oh. weren't enough. Because the creatures yeah. weren't enough, we need to have all Eldrazi planeswalkers. Freeman <laughs> Eldrazi planeswalkers. Okay, we will see what comes up, and yes. I think we are ready to move to topic one. Go for and it. Topic one today is is uh, is a little bit about vintage too, because we have a vintage expert here. It's vintage versus pauper, and we are going to talk about the powerful commons. And uh, some of the listeners may think that vintage and pauper are exact opposites as formats and that they don't share anything, but actually they, they have some similarities. Vintage cannot be played on MTGO currently, that will change, uh, whereas Popper is only sanctioned in MTGO. And building a competitive Popper deck costs about 10 to $100, but Vintage decks can be really expensive, and, and if you look measure the price of the format, by a cost of a single deck, I think Vintage is the most expensive format because of the powerful Power 9 cards. They can cast a house. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there are some very interesting similarities in the formats, and we are here to talk about the powerful commons that they share. Uh, because huge chunk of the 21 years old of Magic cards, uh, these formats actually share because they're both eternal. And although Vintage players are able to use cards from all rarities, uh, there are quite many commons, maybe surprisingly, that see play in the format. And Kevin, I was hoping you could give us a short introduction about Vintage and and then we can go and see what commons are they used in Vintage. Well, you were right about everything you said about Vintage, and I would simply add that for anyone who's not familiar with the format, it is, pop, uh, <clears throat> despite popular misconceptions, it is actually a healthy, reasonable format to play Magic in. I think that is, for anyone who doesn't know, probably the biggest hurdle to get over. Vintage has real games with real decision-making. It has a real metagame. It has evolutions in its metagame. It has real archetypes, combo, control, aggro. And so it has all of the features of every other Magic format you're familiar with, basically. And I think that's one thing that we try to stress on our show is to uncover the choices that people make in games and in deck construction and vintage that belie the fact that it is quite healthy. And as you said, there are commons are no stranger to vintage. Vintage is not just made up of old, expensive, esoteric cards. In fact, the old expensive esoteric cards are pretty minimal in the format, honestly. There are a couple of standout examples, Oath of Druids and Black Lotus and Mana Drain and a couple of others. Bazaar of Baghdad is another big one. Those cards are <laughs> those cards are tent poles of the format, but they do not define every part of it. In between the spaces of those tent poles are powerful commons that get played in both vintage and pauper your lightning bolts and your spell pierce and your delver of secrets i mean these cards are cross formats so i think people should just appreciate that vintage is a real healthy format 
It takes from all of Magic's history, which is part of its appeal. And yes, it has some of the most powerful plays in Magic. Uh, and some of those define individual games. But on average, the regular games of Vintage are quite healthy. And my friend and co-host, Steve Indian, has done a lot of analysis on Vintage over the years. The median number of turns that a Vintage game lasts is not one. It's not two. It's not even three. It's somewhere around four, plus or minus one. Now, there's a lot of variance there, but the point is is that it's not a turn one format either. It's not even a turn two format. Although key plays do happen on turns one and two, and games can be virtually decided in those early plays. But uh, the fact is is that the format is great, and I love it. And I think that anyone who plays Pauper today, they because they are likely playing online, I think you are actually some of the best customers to take on Vintage. Now, if you're the sort of pauper player who's playing it because it is cheap, well, then maybe not quite so much. But, but if you're the sort of player who dabbles in other formats, like Commander Online or maybe your standard or other Eternal formats, Vintage will be readily available, in my opinion, uh, when it comes legal online. And so I think I would encourage a lot of your audience to give it a try. Yeah, actually, what you just said makes makes sense, though, that actually this is one of the things that Popper and Winted share, because I think a lot of the misconceptions that you said apply to Popper also. People have uh, really polarized opinions about Popper because they don't know the format. They haven't actually played it. They just see that, oh, they play the <laughs> two cents worth commons, it, it can't be good. But there is a real metagame and real decks. Very good point. I, I would imagine, and I, I don't talk about Popper in that way much, but I would imagine you have to fight through the conception that Popper is just people bashing grizzly bears against each other all day. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I, I, had a, I had prepared a <laughs> question for you, but you actually saw it from the show notes. But can you recall uh, what are the... Because Vintage has a restricted list. Can you tell quickly to the listeners what the restricted list is and what commons there are in the restricted list. Yeah, the restricted list is a conception that is basically unique to vintage in Sanctioned Magic, and it is cards you can only play one copy of. And it was installed many, many years ago, right about the time when Tournament Magic was coming into its own, and, and the Duelist Convocation at the time was establishing rules for different formats. They recognized at that time that certain cards really broke the game of Magic if you could play unbounded numbers of them. Uh, th those key among them, the original Power 9, the Moxen, and the Lotus, I mean, these cards were very unbalancing. So they created this list of cards you can only play one of. The list has fluctuated in terms of its size and contents over the years. Wizards is, thankfully, currently in a mode as of the last few years of trimming it down as the format gets more healthy and can the magic pool of cards can contain more strategies we've actually seen cards coming off the list so as of right now it's mostly older cards mostly alpha beta uh, era stuff with a, with a handful of exceptions there are three commons on the list those being brainstorm lotus petal and ponder and I don't know, we could talk reams about wild. those three particular cards are all restricted, but the simple truth is is that Lotus Petal falls under the heading of Fast Mana, all the Moxen and Lotus. Most mm -hmm. of that stuff that produces more mana than it costs is restricted, most of it. 
and brainstorm and ponder are both restricted for approximately the same reason it's just that they at the time they were restricted had contributed to the production of a a heavily consistent blue-based combo control deck that was heavily consistent because it had all these cantrips that could search and smooth out draws and, and find combo pieces etc yeah when i when i look at the list i I just keep wondering, brainstorm and ponder, but I don't see preordain there. Well, that is an interesting topic, and one we could go at length about. The simple truth is that ponder was restricted amidst several other restrictions. It was a batch restriction of many cards designed to kill a particular deck at the time. That was before preordain was printed. When preordain was printed, the format could handle it. It was integrated into into viable decks, and it still is today, but it is not contributing to a overly dominant strategy these days. And so there's not been any call to restrict preordain, but there also hasn't been a movement to unrestrict ponder on the part of wizards yet. And this is an area of tension, logical tension that a lot of players point to and say, it shouldn't be this way. It should be one way or the other, both restricted, both unrestricted. And I'm one of the people that's in the camp of unrestricting ponder. I don't think it will have the deleterious effects. In fact, I don't think it was absolutely necessary to restrict it at the time. But you can tell that I could go on for ages about this one. <laughs> okay. So Brainstorm, Ponder, and Lotus Petal. Dan and Peter, could you tell us how, how these cards are implemented in Pauper metagame? Because obviously they have to be really powerful cards. Lotus Petal has been affected by uh, bannings, so it doesn't see a lot of play anymore in Popper. Uh, mainly because it's just uh, one card and there's no nothing to combine it with. Yeah, it was it was when when Storm was going strong. Lotus Petal was important card of that strategy. It was even yes. in fact too for the most part. That way you could always guarantee that you had your uh, turn one creature if you didn't have Glistener Elf or whatever. So that way you could still stick down either. Uh, yeah, like Light Mamba, I think. That's the name of the card. It's been so long since Effect Infect's been online. It was also used in Affinity uh, long ago, and you sometimes see that again. It's Yeah, it's a rare pick every once in a while, but you ever see, do see it pop up every once in a while just because you want to see those people who get, uh, watch you push for that turn one uh, Frogmite or whatever to drop on down. And yeah. Brainstorm almost do not see play in Popper. It's only played if you can uh, combine it with a shuffle effect or yeah. buy some diehard Delver players that don't want Pretty much. alternatives. Yeah. Brainstorm's uh, an interesting example. I find it humorously ironic that you guys went to the shuffle aspect because that just came up in our last episode. The notion that Brainstorm was printed in Ice Age and didn't see play in vintage for years it wasn't until the fetch lands were printed and players had ready recurring not recurring uh ready repeated access to shuffle effects yeah. that brainstorm finally came into its own yeah the, the the theory behind brainstorm being such a good card is hey i had to pay one man and draw three cards but if you have crap in your hand and crap on top of your library guess what you're stuck with absolutely Poop. <laughs> also yeah. i would I would expect that in Pauper, that effect is amplified because he, the power curve of your cards is flatter. Now, don't don't take this the wrong way. What I mean to say is that in Vintage, there are great spikes in your power curve, or one single card that will change a whole game in your favor right then. If you brainstorm into Black Lotus, 
many a game have ended right then. Yeah. And that's not to say that there aren't power spikes in Pauper, of course, but the, the simple truth is is that the value of seeing three cards instantly is amplified in a format like Vintage where there are yeah. such tent poles of power. Mm-hmm. And contextual sense. power, too. Yeah, because, I mean, I'd imagine brainstorming into, like, a Black Lotus, a Lotus Petal, and something stupid is just... Yogmoth. <laughs> yeah, that's ridiculous. That's right. Brainstorming into Black Lotus and Yogmoth will is one of those things that will end games. Yeah, there's nothing new about it. Just keep playing them over and over again. You know, remember that I tried earlier in this game? Can you stop it again? <laughs> no? Cool. <laughs> yeah, so those are some of the examples that, that the two formats share and play. And there are lots of other cards. Uh, I'm, I'm going to give everyone a chance to talk about the card that they want to talk about. Uh, one of my favorite cards that I, I, I always want to try to add to my deck is Gush. Now, this, this is a very important card in Vintage, but doesn't actually see that much play in Pauper. Some of the Delver decks use it and utilize it to keep up the tempo and draw fresh spells, fresh counter spells to protect the Delver. Uh, but other than that, it doesn't see much play. Uh, Kevin, could you talk about shortly about how Gush is implemented in Vintage and why it's such a powerhouse there? Yeah, G uh, Gush is one of those cards that, that uh, well, my co-host Steve has literally written a book about it called <laughs> Understanding Gush, and that should tell you a little bit about how deep it is. But the simple truth is that it is very efficient. It, you can play it for free, of course. You can abuse then its alternate casting cost in a way that you really probably can't do in Pauper by manipulating the replay of your lands, getting mm -hmm. additional replays of lands, especially through fast. Yeah. Bond. And in general, chaining gushes together. Thanks to aforementioned Yogmoth's will, it's possible to play as many as eight gushes in a turn. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I played I did play Gush seven times in one turn this past Saturday. <laughs> in, in a tournament. In a, in a game of tournament magic, I played Gush seven times in one turn. And so it's the fact that it's so efficient combined with the fact that you can assemble an engine out of it that is why it sees play vintage. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very powerful god, and and we don't have uh, ways to abuse it in in pauper, like we don't have fast bond engine or anything like that. But it still sees play because it's so efficient at what it does. Mm -hmm. Drawing two cards for free is is because Delver doesn't care if you have to bounce islands back to your hand. Yeah, yeah. So we we can go in order, and everyone can pick up cards they would like to discuss. Dan, what's uh, did you have any comments in mind you want to talk about here in this topic? Uh, I am very interested in uh, talking about commons or possible commons in Vintage Masters, but I think we're going to wait with that until later. <laughs> yeah, we can we can talk Vintage Masters after topic one. Yes. Uh, to, to speculate if we have some some reprints. Yes. Yeah. So jump ahead. Ah, uh, Peter, do you have any comments in mind you wanna talk about? Uh, are we including the paper ones or no? Yeah. <laughs> then that 
the obvious one is him to Turok. Any black deck plays him to Turok if you're playing Paper Popper, just because a turn two that can just take the knees out of any deck could be p- potentially a black deck and just like, oh, I robbed you of your second land drop, which keeps you behind. Plus, if you're playing a combo deck at all, it could just go out and flat out kill their combo. Blow them out. Yeah, I was just watching an uh, announcement on a Finnish forums about Paper Popper tournament, and I was wondering if, if it was full of him to Torax, but I, I haven't looked at the results yet. So for the listeners, we, we can shortly say, and for Kevin, that him to Torax is one of the few cards that are actually printed in common, but they are not printed in common in Magic the Gathering Online, and therefore it's not legal to use uh, him to Torax in MTGO proper. So you guys are looking for and possibly hoping that it will be printed at Common and Vintage Masters. Oh, that, that would, would be, be wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> if you were to see Mono Black Control take over more than a 30 yeah. million. <laughs> that yeah, would, that would probably cause something to be banned. Hemp <laughs> Turok is down, downright dirty just because it... The two random played, factors is the thing. Yeah, you played two of those in a row and I can guarantee your opponent will scoop. They, they're not going to stick around. Because it's it just it's just it's just too oppressive. It's ridiculous. I mean, it's, you're not leaving your opponent with anything. Correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, but with what little I know about the current pauper metagame, it seems like decks are not good at digging out from that kind of a hole. No, no. <laughs> if you right? can put someone that far behind, you've almost claimed a game right there. Because <clears throat> there's no there's no uh, tent poles to use my analogy before that will buy you back all that card advantage. No, you just lost out in your, your hose. Uh, at the dugout, the story I used to work at as a coordinator, we actually did paper popper with the Hem de Turok, and I won many games off of off of Hem de Turok and my opponent on turn twice by turn three. It was first turn Swamp and uh, Duress. Second turn Hem de Turok. Third turn Hem de Turok. Scoop next game. <laughs> There, there, there's nothing you can. There's no rebound from that. It's just heh, good luck next time. How much play does it see in vintage? <laughs> Him the Turok has not seen active vintage play for quite a while. It was part of a few different, mostly mono black strategies, probably ten years ago. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm at beginning the year wrong, but. Uh, yeah, it hasn't been quite a long time since Him to Turok was played. There are actually some mono black strategies still, but they have moved beyond Him to Turok and and focused on some other things since then. Oh. So it's it's too slow, pretty much. Yeah, it's too slow. And also, again, what I pointed out is Vintage has so many cards and strategies that can buy back card advantage and or tempo and great swaths that just getting a two for one is good but it is not a primary strategy. Exactly. Yeah. When you're making mention, like Black Tech's utilizing Yaga's will, sure enough, you hit him with a him to Turok. If you don't hit the lands or anything, you've basically just had him go, okay, so I get to use my alternate hand, a.k.a. my graveyard, so I can just keep <laughs> it there for when I do get my uh, yeah. Yaga's will to play it from there. You're right about that. Hand disruption is very seldom used in Vintage today, very sparingly. Mm-hmm. And when it is, it's used very tactically along the lines of the rest or thought sees not as a just a card advantage strategy like him basically is mm-hmm. yeah. anything else sorry hey do you have any cards oh sorry i was okay 
Um, I actually, and this is a pet card of mine, I like Naya. Wild Nakadal is one of my favorite cards to play, and I am very excited. Uh, just not trying to change the subject or anything, but Modern brought back Wild Nakadal, so I'm probably going to make Naya for you Modern. You want to play Naya Zoo again? I love Naya's. I thought Naya Zoo was a good deck in Wild Nakadal. I love that card. And uh, I wish there was some way of playing that competitively in Popper, but three-color decks just don't stand up stand up that well in Popper. And that comes That's down to the my... discussion we've had time and time again, is that yeah. the mana base doesn't afford mana us. mana base can't afford to use it, but that is something that I really, really like. Love that the day card. Popper gets a duel and it doesn't come into play tapped. <laughs> so... People but no, is Wild Nakadal even in the metagame at all? Vintage-wise? I can't remember the last time I saw Zoo in Vintage. The short answer is no. Uh-huh. There are very, very few creatures at the top tiers of Vintage that see play just for their power and toughness. Uh-huh. Very few. Uh, there, are, there are a couple, like Delver of Secrets, which... Obviously, sees play in Popper as well, but yeah. otherwise, most creatures in Vintage are there for additional effects, additional utility, etc. Yeah, no, I just it's one of my favorite cards. I love like swinging in turn two with that and rancoring the crap out of it. And <laughs> I will say though, I have to give props for uh, Vintage Slash Panther. I think it's amazing in Vintage for what I've seen. <laughs> <laughs> it has it. You know, it kind of fell out of favor, but when it was big, it was very cool. And Steve and I did a whole episode dedicated to. They called it um, Cat Stacks, or Cat Stacks Fever, depending on how you, uh, <laughs> whom you ask, because it was primarily a workshop-based uh, aggro prison deck, and but the Slash Panther was really kind of a flash in the pan in Vintage, but for a while it was amazing at what it did. Yeah, because like, didn't, wasn't the general plan for the the Cat Stack deck was a, uh, it was like turn one or two you have Slash Panther and stacks online. Eventually, since you just have this aggressive four-power thing swinging at you consistently, it's not only are you dealing with the constant sacking of uh, stacks that's keeping you behind, but you've got five turns, otherwise you're just gone. That's right. That's right, and it was so easy to cast, and also it preyed on Jace the Mind Sculptor and in a way that people weren't used to. Haste creatures, aside from what Dredge provides, haste creatures are generally not a thing in Vintage. It just so happens that no creature that's good at utility is also having haste and swinging in so that was something of a catching the metagame unaware situation okay you already said took out jace the mind sculptor i'm completely on board with slash panther anything that kills jace the mind sculptor is a winner in my book <laughs> well it's like hey here comes jace i do my brainstorm that's a cute slash panther jace is dead next <laughs> jace the mind sculptor has single-handedly influenced what creatures get played in vintage I hate yeah. that card. I hate that, Jace that, so much. That actually like it did in any format where it was yeah. <laughs> Chase the Mind Sculptor and that notion of killing Chase the Mind Sculptor actually segues into a next card I want to talk about, which is Lightning Bolt. Mm. Uh, many people consider Lightning Bolt as uh, if you play red in Popper, there is actually no reason to not to play Lightning Bolt. Is the that the case in red card, basically? Yeah. Is, that the well, same, is the same notion true for Vintage? Well, the short answer is no, but the long answer is that there are certain archetypes in Vintage these days that play red, and Lightning Bolt is on a very short list of cards 
that are causing them to play red. And ironically, several several of those cards are commons. But the simple truth is that Lightning Bolt is very popular these days, very common, and it's uh, there are tons of reasons why that is. We in Vintage use Lightning Bolt in almost every way you can. Um, you use it for spot removal on creatures. You use it for spot removal on Jace. You use it for threatening your opponent's life total. You use it for doubling up with Snapcaster Mage. You use it for flipping Delver of Secrets. It just it, it is used to almost its maximal utility in Vintage. It's, it's awesome. It's the best possible mana co- cost for three damage. You're right. And <laughs> it's it's almost crazy to think that in Vintage people are adding red to their deck for just that card. In certain yeah. main deck configurations, it will be the only red card in their main deck. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. <laughs> uh, then it's also, uh, it's also sorry. I just wanted to add. It's also a confluence yeah. of what gets played in vintage because because Jace the Mind Sculptor has three loyalty and because Lodestone Golem has three toughness. Those two yeah. threes contribute greatly to Lightning Bolt's power and popularity. Yeah, that's that's reasonable <laughs> yeah when I, when I was preparing this episode and I was looking up commons that see play in vintage and in pauper uh, the list is long about the cards but one thing that catches my eye is the amount of counter spells it seems like wizards previously not anymore but previously printed aggressively good counter spells as commons we have Dage, Counter Spell, Spell Pierce, Red Elemental Blast, Black Blue Elemental Blast, uh, awesome counter spells that we use. Dan, what, what are your thoughts? Why, why certain counter spells are used in Popper and and which of these counter spells are, are the most effective in, in Popper? Well, Dace is the most expensive card in Popper. That's probably because of yeah. uh, its use in Legacy. Um, if you look at the, the modern era counter uh, spells, they are now printing them at the rare. Yeah, so they, they're really good. They don't print powerful counter spells in new sets. Uh, compared to the, the rest of the format, the, the powerful counter spells like Counterflex that goes uh, in the rare slot. Yeah, there's no common counter spells that are really good in newer stuff. No, like we were talking about, like we said, like uh, the only hard counter, like hard hard counter they've printed in a long while was cancel, and that's cost yeah. three, which is just too just, late to use half the time. Yep, it's 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 one it's one mana too slow. Yeah, but that was a decision they made uh, quite a while back. Yeah, it's... Uh, looking at the counter spells in Pauper, then, uh, yeah. this is the most flashy one, absolutely. This is the, the one you worry about all the time. Uh, but the one seeing most play is, of course, Counterspell itself. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, all red and blue decks should pack at least a couple of Pyroblasts or Hydroblasts. And I all, almost always go for the full set in the sideboards. Yeah. I, I think if you're, you're looking for any downside to counterspell, it's just the double blue. Um, but if you, but uh, on single-handedly, just it's, it's, it's countered and that's it. There's no other condition. It's just done. 
Yeah, a lot of uh, two-color decks in Pauper actually don't play Counterspell or play uh, less than four. Yeah, because the double blue is a heart. They can't. The double blue actually is that makes the card significantly worse because you have to have two blue mana. I what think about that's, mana leak? Yeah. It doesn't <laughs> see a lot of play. It's, They're uh, good early. Yeah, Prohibit usually mm-hmm. uh, is a better choice for a single blue mana. Counterspell. Yeah. They're good early, but not late, because by the time, if you hit getting them late, your opponent can pay three mana to stop it. Makes sense. Yeah, pro- I, yeah. I am not familiar with what the late game of popper games I mean, is like these days. So, If you're going to play anything having, if you're going to play anything close to Matt, to, um, to uh, uh, that card, there's you'll see people playing miscalculation, because miscalculations are great early. But if you get stuck with them late, you at least get to cycle them and draw a card. Makes sense. Compared to yeah. being stuck with a card that I can't do anything with now. Yeah, that's also interesting. Uh, the notion of uh, why Mana League isn't actually very playable in Popper is uh, one of the similar cards that is really powerful is Spell Appears. Uh, it's yeah. widely adopted in Legacy. I think it sees play in Vintage, but it doesn't see any play in Popper. Dan, do you? Why is that? Why is Spell Pierce not a playable in Popper? I can't even remember what Spell Pierce does. Is it it's, uh, one extra co- mana one... for an instant or sorcery? Or... Uh, no, yeah, one mana counter target instant or sorcery spell unless its controller pays two. It's sideboard deck. Uh, I'd I like to answer that if question that... by talking about another counter spell that does will never ever see any play in Vintage, which is now uh, the most expensive one in Popper, and that's uh, Exclude. So I think exclude pretty much illustrates why spell pierce is bad in pauper. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Exclude has a, a l- sees a lot of play right now because uh, after the bannings you have to base your pauper decks on creatures and you have to counter the maldrifters. Yeah, you get to draw a card. Cantrip counter is really powerful. <laughs> yeah. So this is a, a format where it's hard counter. Yeah. That's spell pierce. Yeah. Kevin, does spell pierce see play in vintage also? I know, I know it's a huge in legacy. Oh yes, yes, quite popular in vintage. Yeah. Yeah. Counter spells in vintage are a fascinating topic, uh, which again I could go on for ages about. But a lot of the reasons and that something please sees play in vintage has to do with flexibility. Um, you guys mentioned exclude, for example, which makes sense because the it will you will have targets, so going basically every archetype. Games go long enough such that you can expect to get the three mana and get the value out of it. Those kind of expectations don't exist on the same axes in Vintage. You can expect that you will have targets for spell pierce only in certain matchups, there is no counter spell basically in vintage that you will be able to apply to every matchup. Even something omnipresent like Force of Will is not actually good in certain matchups, like Dredge, for example. So vintage <laughs> has much more pressure on your card selection and, in addition to that, mana efficiency and flexibility when it comes to the counter spell slots. So there's a lot of variety about what counterspells see play in Vintage, they are almost all universally really cheap and really flexible. Yeah. I mean, 
Yeah, that's another thing I've noted in vintage. I mean, back, I played vintage a long time ago, long, long time ago. Um, Dredge is actually a monster. And mm-hmm. wasting a con- if you're countering a Dredge spell, you just wasted it, wasted a card. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> you deep. really just wasted it. <laughs> there are a couple of situations where you want to counter dredge's spells mostly yeah. it's post sideboard and it's protecting something that you brought in to defeat yeah. and the best counter spell against dredge is typically um mental misstep yeah because they're one of their primary axes for fighting you is cobalt therapy so yeah it's just it, that card yeah dredge is just a monster of a deck and still one of my favorites <laughs> it definitely is it's it's pretty oppressive when it comes to deck construction and vintage yeah at least for sideboards oh yeah but I mean, it's just. I think last time I I played dredge was for casual fun, just for funsies. I had a casual dredge deck, and I was playing against a control deck, and this kid was just countering everything. And I'm just like, okay, I'll bring it back next turn. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, so, I love that. So, Kevin, do you have any specific cards that you want to talk about? I see you prepared us a nice spreadsheet about about commons that are played in vintage. In light of what I've just learned about the current pauper metagame, I want to highlight Steel Sabotage. Now, we've already touched on it a little bit. I like talking about Steel Sabotage because it represents so much of what I just said about Counterspells in Vintage. Also, it represents a lot about the Vintage metagame because Steel Sabotage is played because artifacts are omnipresent in the format both in the form of archetypes, workshop, prison, and and aggressive prison archetypes, but also in the combo control decks, the mostly blue-based Jace control decks will frequently end their games with artifacts, those being Blightsteel Colossus or Time Vault. And the fact that there's that intersection at artifact across so many archetypes means that Steel Sabotage is played heavily in vintage, sometimes in the main deck, sometimes in the sideboard, and it's played because of its versatility. And I think that is a little bit of an antithesis to how it's played in Pauper, because you guys basically play it because of one archetype, and it serves basically that role. In Vintage, Steel Sabotage is actually much more flexible. You can counter cards in combo, control, and aggressive and prison decks using a Steel Sabotage. It has targets against almost every archetype. And it will get you out of situations like a Resolve Tinker for Blightsteel Colossus or a Turn 1 Lodestone Golem when you were on the draw. So a Steel Sabotage is key due to its efficiency at getting you out of certain situations like that, too. That's, that's why it's played in Vintage, and I suspect that the, the use of it is slightly different in Pauper. Now it would be interesting to have Chris Weaver on, because uh, people, if you look at mtgo.com and... Pauper premier event results. Chris Weaver just won a premier event yesterday. He was playing Delver like he usually does. And he has two steel sabotage yep. in his sideboard. Peter, uh, Nate, Dan, why does people he, play sideboard in, in steel sabotage in sideboard s- in Pauper? Steel sabotage, what it does is it it stunts the the one of the big popper decks that if you're not playing Delver you have to deal with is affinity. And uh, a steel sa- a well placed steel sabotage can uh, 
bounce a creature, bounce one of their creatures back if you miss the counter spell, as well as stop the creature from hitting or stop the as well as stop it from entering play. But besides that, if you're playing with serrated arrows, if you have serrated arrows in your deck, you can actually recharge serrated arrows and 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 bring it back to your hand before you use the last counter. And uh, play serrated arrows again, and use it just to replayability of serrated arrows. And and also one one aspect that steel sabotage does is uh, against affinity you can bounce the lands. Yes, which, which can be a very efficient way to deny some mana in the beginning, and also deny the affinity uh, developing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what what the Delver uh, does uh, affinity is a bad matchup for Delver. Oh yeah, and yeah. Uh, the problem is resolved four force, uh, which Delver has a hard time dealing with. Uh, so the Curse of Chains and the Steel Sabotage are mainly to prevent four force from landing, either by uh, countering very early artifacts or uh, just. Uh, returning mere enforcers. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's a t- basically steel sabotage is a toolbox in and of itself. I mean, it does a lot. I mean, and if you follow Chris's deck list, uh, he has tested uh, every card in poker mm-hmm. against Affinity. Pretty much, he is yeah. a Delver player. Like, like I like playing Delver, but I mean, Chris, like I, he does everything with this deck. I mean, he is well, well well known for using this deck to win <laughs> so on occasion too steel sabotage this isn't unheard of every once in a while i don't know if chris does it or not but uh whatever players will sideboard it in against the mirror match too that way you have an answer for the uh, spire golem stall outs yep because that's the one big thing that stops uh delver in the mirror matches is who sticks out a spire golem can usually hold on the fort because no one can attack through them unless you either have your uh bone splitter out or not, but if you can't beat that then you, if it's just Spire Golem, Spire Golem steering each other down, you go, okay, bounce Durus, I can start getting through, in which case, A, you finally get to reapply pressure, and it threatens to get their Spire Golem recountered, or they're going to need to start throwing fairies in front of Golem, which is going to hinder your spell starter sprites and stuff like that. Yeah. I'm glad that I brought Steel Sabotage up, because I <laughs> love hearing the way I described it and the way you described it speaks to the same contribution to a metagame as a whole they're answering totally different threats across these two different formats but the fact that they basically represent the metagame you know they encompass the metagame in a way in their own part of it is awesome (laughs) i love that yeah it's used in a lot of stuff it's like i said it's just a big toolbox it can do a lot for one for its cost yeah but it seems like it's more widely adopted in in Vintage because yeah. of the high density of artifacts, which makes sense. Oh yeah, yeah. certainly. Yeah. Uh, oh, look we at talk- the oh. second place in that premier event. And that's another Delver deck. Yeah, Messalist the sort of uh, one of the he's the leader of one of the schools of Delver decks, and yep. Chris and I have been his followers, <laughs> and uh, he he chose Anal instead. Yeah. Oh, he plays what mutagenic growth. Yeah. <sighs> yep. It makes He's me also sad. the last diehard uh, brainstorm player. Yes, he is. <laughs> uh, Kevin, does Anal see play in Vintage? It's one mana counter mox. <laughs> it does. <laughs> and it sees play because it counters Oath of Druids. 
Yeah. Nah. <laughs> uh, when Steel Sab Anul saw more play before Steel Sabotage was printed, for the reasons I just described, it was still quite good at countering artifacts. And Oath of Druids has always been around in vintage for for ages, basically since it was printed. But it comes and goes in terms of relevance in the metagame, depending on well, effectively how good of a combo you can make with it, and or how good creatures are. When Gristlebrand was printed, Oath jumped into the forefront again because now it's a way for you to oath up drawing 14 cards which is as you know pretty good so anul does <laughs> see play <laughs> it doesn't see as much play as steel sabotage because it lacks the flexibility but it does still see some play yeah, yeah. Uh, kevin did you have some other cards you want to discuss well you know i was before you guys took your turns i was going to bring up lightning bolt um, yeah. And for all the reasons we covered, and we've already touched on Brainstorm, there's one that I see that I don't see on... Well, hold on a sec. Let me look at the the, the one mono black deck in this <laughs> tournament result. No, you, are, you are absolutely correct. I see which card you are highlighting in the spreadsheet. This is one of my favorite cards, and I don't get it why it doesn't see more play in, in Popper. I like to include it in my... When I brew... Rogue decks, I always, if I play black, I, I, I will include this card in the sideboard at least. But Kevin, please. <laughs> yeah, and I'm with you. I was hoping to see it on this list, but I'm talking about Snuff Out. Snuff Out okay. is a fascinating card in Vintage. It, it is on the expensive side, both in mana and or in life. So it's not omnipresent. It is about as far you can get, I would say, from a an alternate mana cost that people are willing to commit to in Vintage. Because for many reasons, which would take me ages to explain, having a swamp in play is not as good a thing as you might think. It is simple to accomplish, and it is frequently a bad choice, mostly because of Wasteland. But that having been said, Snuff Out does see play. It's... It's in sideboards usually, and it's mostly good because it hits Lodestone Golem on the draw with only one land, which is a very, very narrow window of effects. If you look through all of Magic's 10,000 plus cards, you will find very few ways to remove a Lodestone Golem with only a single mana on, on the draw. And also, it's just getting a little bit better because creatures are sort of on an upswing in vintage. There's been a lot of interesting printings lately, as long as, as well as metagame developments that mean creatures are, are more and more common these days. I'm a little bit surprised that it doesn't see play in Pauper. It seems like such an amazing tempo play. It well, used to. A lot of the big problem is uh, one of Black's worst matches for the while there was the uh, classic Hexproof Oros deck, just because with so much direct removal... They stick any creature, and black can't do a thing to stop it. Yeah, can't interact with hexproof. It's just, yeah, you just you just can't interact with it at all. You have to sub out like stuff that hits everything and not targets. Yeah, so you end up having guest verdict. Exactly. So you have edicts in the sideboards, edicts in yeah. the main board, and everything. And the other yep. thing too is black has been kind of morphing towards more of a da -da -da -da, what's it called devotion deck now too, as you can kind of see with the great merchant of Asphodel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So everything wants to have like a double black mana cost in this cart for the most part, and then finding ways of redoing it. So basically, it's just throw out a bunch of stuff, get as much black on the board, eventually just start playing cards that just net you so much life that it puts you back up. Yeah. But I, I'm still interested because uh, against Delver, for example, 
you it's, cast uh, gets verdict and they counter it you don't have maybe you don't have more mana to cast any more spells but you you could cast snuff out for free and maybe the Delaware player now doesn't have enough mana to counter the snuff out because it's very uh, crucial against Delaware to to get rid of the first Delaware. Oh yeah, and I completely agree with you, Matt. It's a great card, but like I said, like the only reason why, like you used to see play in sideboards all the time, but it seems like that's the reason why you've seen it kind of just phase away. Yeah, is because people have been going more towards the uh, the what we call it, the devotion method of play as opposed yeah. to what it used to do. Yeah, and we're not considering the fact that say that say it's it's you're on, you're on that turn one. And who's to say that they didn't lay that swamp and tapped it? Because if they laid that swamp and tapped it to do something else, banking on I got a snuff out in my hand and I'll stop this Delver, uh, that's fine because uh, if you can still daze out a snuff out because they can't tap the mana to answer it. Good point. If it you, really uh, doesn't matter. <laughs> it was very popular during uh, Infect before Infect was banned. Oh yeah, because you needed to kill, if they played a turn one creature, it needed to die, because you were almost guaranteed death turn two if you didn't stop it. Sure. Yeah. But speaking as a black control player, then, today uh, there is a, there's a much stronger zero mana alternative for the black decks in Pauper. Uh, if you want to use it on Delver, Snuff Out is bad because uh, for life is so much. Yeah. Uh, so Spinning Darkness is way stronger. Yeah. And uh, gaining three life instead of losing four is um, pretty much. solid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure the explanation doesn't sense. see a lot of play today. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. Like the blacks' main life games today now seem like a uh, banking on gray merchants, and then if they're really, really going to that method, like you see with this guy where he's playing the three corrupts as well, because people used yeah. to shy away from that too, just because yeah. they ran the eight cycle lands instead, so corrupt just wouldn't hit nearly as hard as it needed to. Yeah. And that's why they're losing against Delvers, uh, because if, yeah. if you'd run the sneak attack deck uh, before Grey Merchant, uh, and you use Spinning Darkness, then you have a yeah. pretty good Delver matchup. Well, you also got to look at where, when we're comparing, because like being that we get, we don't have Popper Dailies anymore, you see Mono Black flourishing in the eight mans more than the premieres anyway. Like your premier events, the the, the the Mono Black deck doesn't usually top eight all that much in premier compared to. But in, it, it, uh, used, it used to do that in the old. Premier. Yeah, it oh, used yeah. to. Yeah. And the reason is that they, they build it so it can't be Delver now yeah. because it's so popular to be Devotion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which Re Devotion. <laughs> it, it seems like an odd play. It works, but yeah, it doesn't seem like it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Uh, remember right after the bannings, then uh, it, Mono Black Control was good the deck to play. <laughs> Delver. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it was interesting conversation about Snuff Out, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing more Snuff Outs in Pauper metagame. I think it's the power level is so high that it's got to be played at some point again, I think. It's but, just going uh, to take in the matchups where Mono Black Control is really good, Snuff Out makes you lose, because losing for life is too dangerous. Yeah. I think Snuff Out is something that you might want to play, but as soon as you played your, when you're going into that second match and you're playing, going against Delver, I think it's something you want to pull out and put something else in. You can't really play Snuff Out against Stompy either. No. So yeah. which aggro decks do you want it against? Can, will you use it against Goblins? No. 
No, because they have so many sack outlets, and yeah. you can't it's risk like, losing that much life against goblins because goblins this, will take you turn three, even if you don't give them a head start. Yeah. Yeah. So losing four life is too expensive in poker. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting and all all, all good stuff. Uh, I had a one more card that I wanted to briefly touch, which is uh, Dark Ritual. Uh, one of the very iconic cards. It's from the same cycle of cards as Lightning Bolt and Ancestral Recall. One mana, you get three something, and this is a black card, and you get three black mana to your mana pool. Now, this card has not been played in Pauper after the bannings that took away Storm. Uh, I think it's one of the important spells in Vintage, though. It is, and more narrowly now than it used to be uh, obviously it is primarily played in combo decks and it is still played today uh, burning tendrils combo is forefront of the metagame right now and dark ritual is key to that strategy but i think that time has shown that dark ritual is not as formative or impactful on what forms the vintage metagame as other cards that were printed in the same era if you had asked some uh, popular vintage players maybe 10 years ago what the pillars of the format would be they might have listed dark ritual next to say mana drain and mishra's workshop less so today even though it's heavily played it's not viewed as the driving force behind whole archetypes that it, that it once was it's still important and still necessary for executing combos in specific ways but that's much less forefront in the format from a PR standpoint. Okay, uh, I think we covered topic one. We had an interesting discussion about all these different powerful commons that can be used in 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 both formats, vintage and popper. I, I if if I want to like uh, conclude this discussion, uh, what I see is that we use same cards. But actually, the reasons why specific card choices are made can be really different because, because card choices are, of course, always dependent on the strategies and decks you play again. And, and the, the strategies in Vintage are, are although like we, we can put them in the categories like aggro control and, and, and combo, but uh, they use so different cards and you have to interact with different cards and therefore you need you need to have different answers for them. Most of the proper uh, or commons that you, you see in both formats are actually removal spells and counter spells. Uh, so stuff to ans answer the other, the other players' threats. I would agree completely and I would also add that Vintage has one access that Popper doesn't have the same pressure on and that's mana cost. All the reasons for choosing cards that you just described are the same across formats. You're responding to the metagame. Vintage has an additional pressure, a great pressure on mana cost. So some of the cards that would fit the definition of metagame removal, like, say, Geth's Verdict, for example, uh, can't see play in Vintage because they're not mana efficient enough. So that kind of puts a trunk on the, on the mana cost. And you'll look, if you analyze the commons in Vintage there, the average mana cost is about one mana across yeah. the board. And that's a big pressure that doesn't, it's still a pressure in proper, but it's not as powerful on the results as it is in vintage. Yeah. 
Okay, thank you people for for uh, steering the discussion in this part. And if, if, if it's okay to everyone, we can go to the finance section. Right. Dan, do you have something for us uh, about Vintage Masters coming Magic yes. the Gathering online this next summer? Yes. Uh, the prices of some commons on Magic Online are uh, is very high because uh, they were pr not printed uh, uh, really <laughs> in a in a real set on Magic Online, such as Days and Gush. Uh, Mercadian Masks was also uh, the worst draft format ever, etc. So, <laughs> when a card bad. is printed in Vintage Masters, which if they do the same thing they did with Modern Masters, they create this fantastic draft format, everybody wants to play Vintage. Uh, the, the common cards that are printed in Vintage Masters will be priced at about the same level as Spell Status Bright, which was printed in Modern Masters then. Uh, so, uh, some cards that are very expensive in Pauper will drop to a 10 cent level, probably. Yeah. Which brings me to my question then, Kevin. What, uh, what commons do you see absolutely necessary to reprint in Vintage Masters? Wow. Gush is actually really high on that list. I mean, for all the reasons we just stated, Gush is very popular in the metagame right now. And... As you have already observed, mostly removal. Lots of your lightning bolt, possibly snuff out, but more likely ancient grudge. And let's see, nature's claim. I think claim. they won't reprint anything that's modern legal in vintage. I think Lotus Petal could could see it. Lotus guess, Petal could. I can see Lotus Petal reprints. You don't think they will print anything that's vintage or that's modern legal? No, that I don't. Strikes me, uh, that strikes because... me as pretty restrictive. The, for, the idea of vintage is not that you play cards up to an era, but that you play cards all the way back to an era. Yes, but those, those cards are widely available on Magic Online. Uh, I think they want to close the holes. Uh, that is the cards that don't exist on Magic Online at all. Yeah. And to provide these cards that are hard to get on Magic well, Online. I'm, I am not an expert. How long is that list of holes? It's 400 cards, I think, somewhere along that line. Wow. Yeah. More than I thought. Well, okay. Well, yeah, I would, most of I them would completely... are uh, worthless cards that you don't want to see. <laughs> Granted. You... I would completely agree that they will take this opportunity to fill those holes. I don't know what the overlap is between those holes and vintage playability, but you guys are keenly aware of some key cards, and so yeah. I would be very surprised if they didn't fill the holes that you were all mentioning. Yeah. I, I'm kind of curious whether or not they're actually going to downgrade some cards. Like, Online, red, cards like Red Elemental Blast and Blue Elemental Blast, Blast they're considered, they're not, they don't have those on, they're not common level online. I'd be surprised to see if they actually downgrade that to common. Because we all sense. know it's common in paper. That makes a lot of sense. Hopefully someone at Wizards listens to your show or listens to the community <laughs> and, and knows these issues are still issues. It's pretty clear to me that... The one of the things Vintage Masters represents is the alignment of paper magic and to digital online. magic. And so yeah. not just what cards are even available, but other issues like the ones you just described about commonality being different. Yeah. I imagine those things are on their mind collectively. Because I mean modern I masters. I think all the commonality did. shifts in modern masters was because of the draft format. Yeah. So it I think was, the, I'm the sure. commonalities only, uh, the, all the decisions made on that is yeah. made because of the draft format. 
Because, I mean, you look at Modern Masters, they downgraded and upgraded certain cards. Mm-hmm. Yes. So. They, you know, I... If you had asked me before Modern Masters was released if they could make a format like that be so awesome and limited, I would have said <laughs> no way. And so yeah. now I can't even imagine how they could make Vintage Masters that cool also. But the simple truth is, is this possible? Yeah. Whoever designed Modern Masters is good at what they do, and yeah. I don't see why they couldn't do it again, especially with the history of magic opened up all the way to the beginning to them mm-hmm. there's got to be some fun things they can do yeah the interesting thing though is that when well, i mean specific to the commons the commons that get played in vintage don't overlap very well with good limited magic <laughs> there's it's hyper efficient removal and or really niche removal like say ingot chewer ingot chewer is an okay limited card but i mean come on it's not yeah. very exciting it's no. not going to make a good limited format in and of itself. And something no. like a Gitaxian Probe or a Nature's Claim or a Cabal Ritual, these cards aren't going to make a good limited format. So the cards that are common and good in vintage, I have a feeling that list won't be very long for those that people like about the limited format. But there will almost certainly be a few dozen of them. Yeah. Short poll, how many of us is going to invest in Vintage when it's available in Magic the Gathering online? Kevin, Dan, Peter, Nate, I know I will. I, I, will. I already bought duels, fetches, many of the formats, tables, and now I'm just waiting Vintage Masters to drop Magic the Gathering online. I'm I, I would be very hesitant to own any dual lands right now on Magic Online, because <laughs> I think they will be rare in Vintage Masters. Yeah, but I need them to play Legacy, so... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I, you're going to lose a lot of money on them. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm I strongly considering I don't worry about that. <laughs> okay. I'm strongly considering it just for the online because it's going to be available because I'm probably going to draft the crap out of uh, Vintage Masters. And I am very, very strongly considering because uh, back there, like, I'm a casual player now, but back when I first started playing Magic before Kamakrapa came out, for those that might not re- realize what I just said, that's Kamigawa. It's a set that I, I don't acknowledge as a real set. Um, it's what made me quit Magic. But uh, I used to be a competitive player back in the day with Type 1. And uh, I I do miss it. I just don't like playing competitively. But with Vintage Masters coming and it probably being really easy to get a lot of good Vintage cards... I'm very strongly considering getting it, getting involved at least to the vintage on the online end. So, I, as the resident vintage quote unquote expert here, I find it highly ironic that I'm one of the f- people saying they're not going to get into it. I'm not a Magic Online player, and I already own all the cards that I need to play sanctioned yeah. vintage in print. Yeah. I do lament the fact that I it's it's difficult for me to play vintage at a moment's notice in person. But the simple truth is, is I get to play enough for my choices, my lifestyle. The, I am actually really pleased though, to hear all of you, especially on the popper podcast, which is, there's some level of irony there talking about getting into vintage primarily because it's coming to magic online. You guys are for lack of a better term, the target audience for this thing. And I said on our last show that, if magic, I'm sorry, if 
Magic Online's version of Vintage, and especially with the launch of Vintage Masters, if that's a wild success, it's going to dramatically influence Wizards' position on Vintage, their support for it, etc., both from a development standpoint and possibly from a product standpoint. I really want the thing to succeed. I want yeah. everyone who plays Magic Online today to get excited about not only Vintage Masters, but then trying the format now that it's more available to them. I, I think the strong thing for Wizards is being able to have an online source is it's a lot easier to market it online because like being that the stuff that's in paper you is really actually like you compare markets uh, compared paper versus online. They just can't do that in paper without one ticking off a very large percentage of vintage players. And two, you just you can't you, you you destroy the secondhand market for card shops if you go on a big reprinting spree and reprint things like moxes and lotuses and all that stuff. So the online, I mean, online reprint reprinting online is the next logical step because it's a completely different market that doesn't affect the paper market. And it doesn't break the reserve list, promise. Yeah, and it does exactly. not break the reserve list. I mean, it, it just yeah. makes common sense for them to do that. You're completely I, uh, right about the common sense aspect of it. I would take issue with the perceived impact of reprints in the long run, but that's, again, another topic for another day. Yeah. All I know, if they ever would, I would not want to be in the complaint department of Watsi if they ever did that. <laughs> oh, no. Do you remember, did you see the back... Do you, or Does anyone here remember the backlash of what happened when they said they were reprinting Soaring? Oh, God. <laughs> I, I remember the backlash that happened when they printed Chronicles. <laughs> Oh God! Oh yeah, it's even better. Yeah. What do you I mean you're reprinting the these awesome uh, cards? <laughs> I had the list 24 hours before my local game store, so I sent my friend with all the cards, and he was like, "I'm going on vacation. I gotta sell exactly these cards. It's all my Mishra's <laughs> factories, all my Urn engines." Yeah. <laughs> and he sold it. Uh, well, I think that the Chronicles situation is obviously a debacle. There's there's just no other word to describe that, but. Yeah. The people who are in charge in Wizards right now are keenly aware of all the issues with regard to the reserved list, which is part of the reason why it's still in place. Next. But it's also, I believe, part of the reason why they will constantly and continually, continually reevaluate it. And I firmly believe that if it is ever adjusted again or possibly decommissioned, that vintage masters is one of the key early steps down that road yeah um it would be if they ever did that in paper it'd be extremely limited because i mean the potential of reprinting a lot of those um coming from i used to work at the dugout that so i dealt a lot with secondhand market and paper you reprint too much of those and you could pretty much destroy a shop that's 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 uh getting profit off of secondhand market and paper magic sales definitely and you pretty much destroy their business like to the point they could go out of business that would ever happen any way that they did that would have to be very careful about exactly what yeah. you said but i think I, they could accomplish it i genuinely believe that it's possible to accomplish it in such a way as to not destroy the small business as you said yeah the best ways or how they've made mention of it basically is what they've been trying to do it seems like bits and pieces at a time if any yeah. yeah, You know, there's one interesting, and I, I don't want to get on a high horse here, but there is one aspect about magic printings that 
is been pretty constant for the last decade or more, and that is the time frame of their spoiling. Imagine, just think about this, and we don't have to go further, but think about if they told you today that they were going to reprint the Power Nine in two years. Think about what that does to the mathematics and the economics of the equation that you just mentioned about that card shop's health. Yeah. Imagine if that card shop knows two years in advance that that's going to happen. Now, I don't, need, I don't mean to ask you all to explain the outcome. I'm just simply saying that I think that changes the dynamics of reprinting a lot is yeah. the amount of notice that we get in today's modern era. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, it's, yeah, it's like there's certain shops that would probably be looking to sell all that stuff as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. And I think there would be another similar, not similar, but uh, perhaps opposing backlash for people who suddenly became interested in it. Yeah. So, um, I don't know, it'd be an interesting thing, and I think it that's just one of a handful of ways that they could mitigate the effects. I, I think the I think the one thing you'd see if they ever did do that and gave advance notice that they were doing it, you'd see a lot of power tournaments popping up all over the place. Cause, <laughs> hey, like, that's, that's a good thing by me. Because the only way, like, coming from, I used to be a coordinator at the dugout, the only way to get rid of high-end stuff like that I mean, you're going to come across that one player that drops just tons of money on Magic. But in most cases, when you get a product that is worth a lot, the easy, the easy one of the easiest ways to make money off of it is to do a tournament. Definitely. Yeah, I power mean, tournaments are one of the staples of the vintage community. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the, the like, the some of the high-end product, that's the only way to get rid of that high-end product is to just do a tournament. Because when they did those commander what the commander's arsenal mm-hmm. the, the, they gave each store like 10 of them that's it mm-hmm. each store got 10 commander's arsenals we at the dugout we parceled all 10 of those out in tournaments because if we we could have sold them outright but you're not making much and it brings Money players wise. into your store and it, and it brings players into the store i mean you have potential yeah, you, you have a lot more benefits by making that a big tournament prize. So we had a lot of mad players that were like, well, I want to buy it. It's like, we only got 10. We sell it to you. We tick off X amount of other customers that walk through the door because they have to win theirs and you just bought yours. And that dovetails with part of my point about the excitement or sorry the beginning of yeah. the excitement for vintage masters yeah uh, imagine how much excitement would be drawn if that product was printed oh exactly it would sell out <laughs> well that was interesting discussion dan do you have something to add to the people who are interested about mtgo finance specifically before we go to our next topic the short answer to that is it's time to sell Return to Ravnica block. Standard PTQ season ends uh, on the 9th of March and it is way earlier than earlier years. So rotation is becoming a factor already now. Uh, the price of Return to Ravnica cards will drop. Uh, some cards will drop 98% because of rotation. So Yeesh. get out while you can get out. <laughs> And what card is going to drive Rotation is the most powerful financial factor on Magic Online. So uh, uh, it will affect everything, including the Mythics, including uh, the Shocklands, uh, everything. What's an example of a card that's going to drop 98%? Everything. Packrat will be a 5 cent card. 
on Magic Online oh, in yeah. uh, November. Uh, Desecration Demon will be a 5 cent card, maybe 10 in November. Uh, Nightwave Spectre, since no play in modern, will be 5 cents. Fascinating. Yeah, because yeah. Kevin, look at the what MCTO happened to finals. like. Yeah, look what happened to the the staples of Innistrad Block, uh, Storm, Stormcork Noble, Hellrider, uh, all five cent cards. Yeah, when because the cards have no value when when they are not standard playable in MTGO because there's so many of them in the rotation in the system. Something yes. like Commander and Casual. Yeah, it's such a small value. factor. Yeah, and people, yeah. for example, in Commander, uh, if you play Commander in paper, you want you want to have twenty soul rings. If you play it on MTGO, you only need one because you can put yeah. one to each of your decks. That's yeah. fascinating. I hadn't even considered that. Is yeah. the Dive Navigator still a five cent card? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even though it's so powerful and, and omnipresent in Commander. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Well, the reason why I, I can see why Deadeye would. Was De- has Deadeye always been at five cents? Yes, pretty sir. much. It's never okay. been a big thing. <laughs> oh, it, it had a spike uh, actually a couple of weeks back, and it went to eight. But it's yep. back it probably <laughs> big spike right there. You'll see a lot of people, and like I, I play a lot of Commander. I've seen a lot of people pulling Deadeye out ever since the Sullivan Primordial banning. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> they, they banned Sullivan Primordial, so a lot of people are like, oh, this card's worthless now. <laughs> <laughs> Sad but true. <laughs> okay, thank, thank you everyone for the financing discussion and we are already running over an hour so I want to get into topic two but we'll, we will make it short. I just want to mention this topic because it has been uh, talked in popular people before and it's interesting. Uh, I read again the two articles by Mark Rosewater about the New World Order and I thought this was this could be interesting discussion with someone like Dan and Kevin, who and Nate, who have played like years and years and years, and seen how how wizards have developed cards over the years and how they design new sets and new cards. But we will put these articles to the show notes. And I have this uh, notion that I want to say here is that some people were afraid when these new world orders uh, were explained by Mark Rosewater. Uh, that we we will not see any more playable constructed playable commons because they wanted to take some of the complexity out of common level. Uh, the idea behind the new world order is that the barrier to entry Magic the Gathering grows all the time because they print more cards, more sets, more mechanics, and it creates this complexity creep and makes the game more complex because new players have to know so much if they want to use all the cards that have been printed in 21 years. So Mm -hmm. there is three kinds of complexity that goes here. It's comprehension complexity, which means uh, people, new players must be able to identify what a card does. For example, what bestow means. That's not clear to someone who doesn't know the rules, who haven't read uh, articles about the mechanic. Then there's board complexity, and it's how cards interact with e- each other in Battlefield. Uh, especially in Vintage and Legacy and Pauper, you see infinite loops created by by some certain cards that were not in the same set. They were printed 20 years apart from each other, and 
were not designed to work together. And then there is the third complexity, which is strategic complexity. Uh, things like tempo, card advantage, who is the beat down. All these things have made this game so popular, but the barrier to entry is high. And this is why, why wizards have shifted their thinking so that they will print less complex card at common rarity so that when people, new players, open the booster bags, they see at least 11 cards that they can understand. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, something that, that was discussed. We, we don't have time to go deep, but I would like to get everyone's opinion on this topic shortly. I think that very complexity that uh, a lot of players who have played as long as I have complain about is the very complexity that keeps their game alive because if you look at the models that uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon have followed, there's a reason why they've fallen out of popularity because they've they've the game the game for those two card games has not changed. It's stayed the same for so many years that people eventually get bored. Where you can have magic and have keep adding stuff and keep and dumbing and, and dummying down the common level stuff that your 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 newer players are playing because let's face it your newer players are 10 years 10 sometimes seven to ten year olds that are just starting in the game they 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 don't the the when they're starting out like that there you need something that's simple where i have this creature and my creature's bigger than yours it dies that's the type of magic they are playing. I, I used to run a, a, a youth magic group, and they aren't playing combo. They're playing, my creature's bigger, I'm going to beat you over the head with it. That's how they play. They don't, they don't care about, hey, I did this in, three, in four turns. That's not what they're going for. And I, 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 as much as I'm like any other older player complaining about, oh, that's dumb, they're making the dummying the game down. They have to to survive. If they don't, they'll fizzle out like the other two games. And I want to add here quickly before other people have a chance to talk about this. Uh, Mark Rosewater also points out that when they create new sets, they have flagged so that like 20% of the commons can break the red flags that are provided by the by the New World Order. If if there is a larger scope that they have to consider, for example, you can if if you have a Theros and you want to highlight mechanic like bestow, you have to include it in the common also. Yeah. But Peter, Dan, Kevin, did you guys read the articles? Do you know about them? And do you have any thoughts? Quickly. Uh, quick ones. To say yes would be, I can understand what they're doing. Hell, for as long as I've played, there's still some things that I don't understand how it would fully resolve just because of layering and all those other fun little mechanics. So I can see where, yeah, you need to tone it down so people who are coming into the game can understand. Also, when you, the other problem you can realize, like, if you keep trying to add new complex things, complex things, complex things, eventually you're going to come to a situation where, for lack of a better reference, if anyone's done any kind of coding here, you just create a script error where the game stops because nothing can resolve properly because of how one or two of these mechanics interact with each other. So, them finding a way to rein themselves in so they don't become overly complex and let themselves out of control while simultaneously keeping the game interesting and more accessible to new people. It's basically what I get from it. 
Thanks. Yeah, I'm I'm very sympathetic to this movement. It is the sort of thing that, as a vintage player, doesn't really apply to me. So I can acknowledge it as probably a good thing in the grand scheme of things toward the health of the game and its development. I also don't really require it for my own personal use. I am the sort of person who digs into the mechanics of a new game or anything new about magic, uh, possibly to my detriment in some cases. And so I would simply point out that for a format like Vintage, complex commons or complexity in general is not actually something to be prized or sought. It A lot of the commons that see play in Vintage all the way through to Pauper are good for their efficiency and in many cases their simplicity. We've talked about Lightning Bolt and Steel Sabotage. These are not complex cards. They're efficient, they're flexible, they fill the right role. So I'm sympathetic about this. I think it's probably been a good thing for the development of the game and its embrace of new customers or by new customers. But, yeah. uh, you know, it didn't affect me a whole lot. Yeah, but what you said about Steel Sabotage, I, I disagree a bit because I don't think it's actually a straightforward, easy card to understand because it has strategic complexity. But out of the three complexities, the comprehension and board and strategic, strategic complexity is something that you can print in, in new cards because new players, on, they don't see the strategic complexity before they develop further in their playing skills. Mm -hmm. yeah. A good point. Yeah. yeah, Dan, do you have any comments about this subject? Yes, uh, I've listened a lot to, uh, read what Mark writes and listened to his podcast, and I think he is uh, so good at game design at this point that I pretty much trust anything he does. And he's also gotten a lot better at motivating why he does things. And I think anybody who is into designing games should listen to him because he knows a lot about uh, what works and what doesn't work. So I'm pretty much okay with whatever he does. That's well, my short reply. A lot of your really good... coming. I, I play a lot of tabletop games, and a lot of your good game developers have worked at Wizards anyway. Yes. I, I play Legendary. It's a collectible card. It's, it's, a, it's a, just a... Uh, just else, it's a living card game, basically. That was, design, that was designed by, a, by, a, by one of the people who designed Ravnica. I mean, it's the, the Wizards has good game developers. It's, it's plain and simple, and they just do. Yes. So, but I don't know. That's all I have to say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we can go to the Rage of the Week. Did you guys see these <laughs> <laughs> these poll pictures that I think Chris Weaver added these? I added them. <laughs> Chris uh, encounters a lot of ragers. Yeah. I found both these. Chris submitted this one. Okay, uh, take it away, Nate. Okay. Uh, the, our first one is one that actually Chris... Is it this one? Yeah, this is one Chris submitted. This is... Uh, we're going to give a shout-out to Sherm here. Um, he looks like he lost out against Delver Blue. And uh looks like... I'm I, The game result is covered up. It's White Weenie. Uh, basically, Sherm responds to uh, uh, C. Weaver after Chris won. So lucky. Let's draw eight counters. Well, I hate to break it to you, Sherm, but that's what Delbert does. <laughs> Don't know what to tell you. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, that's that's how I really put. He's just so lucky. Let's try eight counters. Well, that's that's the, he just explained to Chris in a, f- a short sentence what Delver's supposed to do. It's supposed to counter st- counter stuff. And I'm sorry, you're playing white weenie. That's going to happen. Yeah, we we have been on also to the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> I think it, it's probably worth pointing out that that commented game ended with the triggered ability from Spellstutter st- Sprite number three on the stack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lovely. Alcerated <laughs> Arrows is in play. Yeah. Against. And it looks West. like White Weenie has. Does it only have two lands in play? I think it has uh, a, a, a third land over oh, yeah. game or something. Okay. Uh, so. <laughs> Then we have another one here by uh, Kara. Kara, who's who's the rager in this one? Sustain forty two is the rager in this one. Um, he this kind of blurred out, but he's uh, Sustain forty two rights to a uh, Karatek twenty four total sack. And then where Kara, where uh, no, yeah, Karatek responds with, "Are you always angry?" Sustain for forty two responds with, "Are you always a total sack?" Attack. I wouldn't consider myself one. The site has left the conversation. <laughs> so apparently he just got mad because he drew back. I don't know. I don't know. It's just some of these rages. There is a lot more. I found another one by Grappling Farang who re-put one on Salty salty Losers. And again, I know I've said this multiple times before, but uh, Grappling Farang is really an awesome person to have playing Popper because he always, most of the time, gives us content for... Uh, for Rage of the Week because he ticks a lot of people off. And for that, I salute him. Congratulations. <laughs> and like we said, he's not a bad guy and he's not a jerk. He's a cool no. guy to talk to. Yeah, he's really cool. He just he's outplays people. Yeah. <laughs> frustrates him to no end. And I'm just going to end Rage of the Week this Rage of the Week with uh, saying, Grappling Frank, I know you listened to the show. Thank you and keep up the good work. <laughs> Yeah, I just want to say to Kevin and possible new listeners, Rage of the Week is a segment of the show that uh, it's not always there, but quite often, where we look at the screenshots that people uh, flag in Twitter or send at us about MDGO, where people lose their mind when they are losing or having bad draw or something like that. It happens a lot, even in daily events and premier events, which is mm, kind of fun to think about. But I guess it's the anonymous thing that the client has. You don't see these kind of rages when you're playing in uh, Vintage Championships. <laughs> but I bet you will see these when you are playing Vintage in Magic Gathering online. Well, for, one thing, you're not, yeah, for one thing, you're not going to see it in person because if anyone, if, if, if people did what they do in online, in person, they get disqualified. Yeah, it's that simple. They they yeah. just <laughs> good old band hammer. <laughs> judge would just be like, "Get out of here! You're done." <laughs> There's no judge sitting at the table watching for sportsmanship in this kind of no. situation. No. Yeah, but but you can you can report these to the wizards and and I wouldn't advise anyone to be a jerk in Magic Gathering online because that's not. <laughs> I would advise that like on any level for any reason, but also because uh, your collection, it's owned by wizards. They can revoke it. (laughs) Yeah, they can revoke it. Wow, that's an interesting aspect. And they they can ban you for, I I know people who have been banned for six months and stuff like that. Yeah, they can They they can access their collection in six months. It's pretty harsh. Yeah, they can. Did they actually get banned for uh, being uh, not nice? 
I don't know. I don't know the reasons. I I didn't ask. I just uh, I happen to know two people that one of them is actually a really good player that uh, got banned for I think for five or six months, something like that. Yeah. I'd- hey everyone, it's Chris. Uh, at this point in the podcast, the recording that I was given to edit, everything cuts out, and that was pretty much the entire file. I spoke with Maddie, and it they're not quite sure what happened, but that's the end of the episode. Um, for all intents and purposes, they're basically at the end of the show anyway, so I just, I just wanted to add a clarification here. Um, and, of course, one of the th- main things that was important to include that was cut out is the contact information. First of all, huge thanks to Kevin from So Many Insane Plays for being on the show. It was a, a very interesting listen for me especially um having dove into a little bit of classic on mtgo uh, and seeing the the comparisons and the contrast between popper and vintage um in the show notes for this episode there will be a link for how to get to the so many insane place podcast and you can also just go to mdgcast and search for it that way so thanks again kevin it was nice to have you on the show even if i wasn't there in person i appreciated hearing it um, contact information, popper to the people at gmail.com, facebook.com slash popper to the people, and popper to the people.proboards.com. So, yeah, that's it. And until next week, <laughs> this is Chris, and this was Popper to the People. <laughs>